The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine a vacation waiting outside your door when you get home. Discover a new way to escape the stress of everyday life. Picture soothing jets massaging your back, relieving all your aches and pains. Sleep soundly without medications or supplements. Call 1-877-861-4672 to get $1,250 in instant savings, including free delivery. Call 877-861-4672 now or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week it's my turn, and the next week it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. We're going to start off with a little bit of Patreon business. If you want to support the show, one of the best ways you can is to join our Patreon. The link is in the description. You can also find it in our bio on Instagram. All of our patrons get episodes one day early and a bonus episode every month. And you also get a shout out. For this episode's shout outs, big thank you to Angelina and Esmeralda for becoming our Patreon besties. Again, you can become a patron too by clicking the link in the show notes or heading over to our Instagram at the Murder Diaries pod and clicking the link in our bio. If you're not looking for subscription-based support, but you want to support our show, you can head over to buymeacoffee.com slash mdiaries and you can buy us a coffee there. Thanks again to all of our patrons and those of you that support us on Buy Me a Coffee. On the evening of November 28th, 2012, 26-year-old Emma Filipoff caught an acquaintance's attention as she stood barefoot hugging shoes to her chest on a street corner, uneasy, almost nervous about crossing. She showed other signs of distress too as she looked over her shoulder time and time again, as if she were expecting someone or something to be following her. Not knowing what else to do, the acquaintance contacted authorities who spent 45 minutes with Emma before releasing her on her own recognizance as she walked into the dark, rainy evening alone, never to be seen or heard from again. This is her story. For as long as her family can remember, Emma Filipoff has been, quote, quiet in a contented way. Growing up with three outspoken and competitive athletes as siblings, she was the outlier who never partook in sports, choosing to dance instead. Doing so until she was 15, only to quit when her coach, quote, wanted her to compete, according to her mother in an interview for the Times Colonist. She's smart, independent, and fiercely private. But that doesn't mean Emma closed herself off entirely. As a tender-hearted soul, she expressed herself through all kinds of art. Her father, James Philippoff, reflected on his daughter's talents 
in an interview with the Fifth Estate, saying Emma was, quote, very artistic. She excelled at everything she did. When she danced, she was always the lead dancer. When she made art, it shone. When she wrote, she wrote beautifully. There was never one thing that she did that she really wanted to stay with, I guess. She always wanted to explore new options, end quote. It sounds to be a fair assessment of Emma's talents and skills. She taught English in China, earned back-to-back degrees in photojournalism and culinary arts, and enjoyed painting and writing, specifically journaling, blogging, and poetry. In fact, she wrote page after page of poetry. Her computer is filled with these documents. Please tell me we have an example of her work. I would love to hear it. And I'm sure our listeners would too. I'm so glad you're asking to hear some because I was able to get my hands on a few different pieces thanks to the fifth estate coverage of Emma's disappearance. Here's one that I think is especially beautiful. It reads, quote, becoming light, letting go of the body for the sky, nowhere else to go but up, over the rainbow, heaven on earth, end quote. Now, even though Emma was known to keep friends and family in the dark about the intricacies of her day-to-day life, those details became even harder to come by after she moved across the country from her Perth, Ontario hometown to be by the water in Victoria, British Columbia in the fall of 2011. Her mother, Shelley, acknowledges this in a Times Colonist article where she's quoted saying, Emma has always been that way. She was always very private, but I think that might have gotten worse in recent years. For those who encountered Emma during her stay out west, she seemed upbeat and positive as she built her life around the water that drew her there in the first place, living on a houseboat and working various jobs in and around Victoria's inner harbor before securing a position at the Redfish Bluefish, which is a local restaurant known for its fish and chips. According to Vice's article about the case, a friend of Emma's who wished to remain anonymous said Emma appeared, quote, very happy. But looking back, they also said Emma seemed to give off the vibe that she was running from something. Around this time, she also became fast friends and roommates with Michaela Bouchard, a quote-unquote kindred spirit who echoes the anonymous friend's sentiments, telling the Fifth Estate documentary crew, quote, I think she was trying to keep distance from a lot of people just to kind of breathe. Do we know who or what she may have been running from or why she needed to, quote, just breathe? That's really what's at the heart of the mystery surrounding Emma's disappearance. There have been clues, but nobody can say for certain right now. However, one major event that raises eyebrows is Emma's February 2012 move out of the houseboat in the harbor and into the Sandy Merryman house, a woman's shelter, where she lived on and off for the next nine months, totaling about four months of nights spent at the shelter from February 2012 to November 2012. I read article after article trying to find the why, the reason for Emma's move to the shelter, but none of the resources have a clear, concise answer. A Sandy Merriman House staff member told the Times colonist that they, quote, don't ask women why they need to stay at the shelter, which makes complete sense. But as someone looking into Emma's disappearance, this is so frustrating. And if you're wondering whether her family can answer that question, they have no idea either. Emma never even told them she was living in a shelter. This idea of Emma living in the shelter and her family not knowing is really hitting me. Were there any other changes in her life? Was she still working? Was she keeping the same friends? What else is going on with her at this point? Any other kind of, I guess we'll call it red flags or major changes? That's a lot of questions to unpack. So we'll start with Emma working. 
Yes, she's still working at the Redfish Bluefish, but it is a seasonal job, so it ends on October 31st, 2012. She leaves on good terms and promises to return in February 2013. But let's back up a little. As for Emma's personal life, it's hard to say. We know that Emma's a private individual. She doesn't open up to anyone. But according to findemmaphilipoff.com, Emma bought a red 1993 Mazda MPV-1. It's a type of van. In June or July of 2012. She bought it with the intention of living and traveling in it. And this was something that she was so, so excited to do. At this time, she was also in search of a, quote, more pure lifestyle. The Finding Emma Filipoff website continues with the following, quote, she quit binge drinking in June and also cut out cigarettes, coffee, and sugar. Some say she had occasionally smoked marijuana. Others report never seen her take any kind of drug, unquote. Whether it was due to the new more pure lifestyle or something else, towards the end of summer, friends had noticed a shift in Emma with one mentioning her social behavior and eating habits becoming more sparse and infrequent. In fact, Emma had lost a significant amount of weight at this point. But probably the most concerning change is that she became, quote, fearful, withdrawn, and paranoid. Emma's journal entries at the time reveal a very real fear of being followed. One entry in particular reads, I feel like there's someone following me. A car on the hill when I rose and then drove as I walked by and paused in the street. Feel weird sometimes. Feel like I'm being stalked, unquote. The Sandy Merryman house staff witnessed Emma moving furniture out of the shelter and onto the curb, claiming that they were, quote, making too much noise and talking to her. Emma began getting rid of her belongings, donating, selling, gifting, even throwing stuff away. The behavior frightened and concerned the staff so much, but they weren't legally allowed to contact Emma's family because there were privacy laws in place. Instead, they requested authorities to conduct a welfare check. But that didn't happen. Instead, they said to call back if she continued this behavior. And it did. Five days before her disappearance, there's CCTV footage of Emma entering the Victoria YMCA. All appears normal as she opens a membership and exits the building soon after. But then something unusual happens. She re-enters the building and goes through the doors four more times in a 14-minute window oftentimes watching the parking lot from the inside the building. It's reminiscent of Elisa Lamb and the footage of her peeking out of the elevator. Emma's behavior makes you wonder, was someone waiting for her out there? Which was a very real possibility, but we just don't know. As a result of the paranoia, she cut her limited communication with her family even more in the days and weeks leading up to her disappearance. But all of that changed when a tearful Emma reached out to Shelly in the early morning hours of November 23rd, waking her from a deep sleep, telling her mom, quote, I want to come home. It's a shocking phone call to get from your child at any age, but especially nerve-wracking when it's someone like Emma, who's typically so reserved and independent and unwilling to let anyone into what's going on in her life. According to her interview with the Fifth Estate, Shelly comforts her daughter, telling her, quote, absolutely, honey, you can always come home. You always have a home. And with that, things seemed to be settled until the following day when Emma called again. Emma was now uncertain about whether or not she'd return, telling her mom, quote, I don't know if I can face you. Mother and daughter spoke on the phone four days in a row with Shelly growing more worried by the hour. Shelly volunteered to fly out to Victoria. That's a long flight to be with her daughter. But as Inside Ottawa reports, the very last words Emma ever said to Shelley were, 
quote, don't come, not today, mom. That conversation ended at 4 a.m. on November 28th, 2012. And Shelly's maternal instincts were aflamed. She decided then and there that she'd fly out to Victoria as soon as possible. She would later tell the Fifth Estate, quote, I just thought my instincts had been telling me right from day one that this is not just a momentary lapse of strength. I said there's something really, really wrong here. Shelly is on a flight by that afternoon, arriving in Victoria later that same evening. She arrives at the shelter at 11 p.m., only to learn that Emma left around 6 p.m. and never returned. Nobody knows where Emma could be. Victoria police open an investigation into Emma's disappearance an hour later. And as investigators look into Emma's case, they retrace her steps, putting together the following timeline of November 28, 2012, the day Emma Filipoff went missing. There are more in-depth details on the Find Emma Filipoff website, so be sure to check it out because this is the truncated version. November 28th starts with Emma leaving the women's shelter and arriving at the Chateau Victoria where she parks her van. Immediately, she's upset because there's a notice saying she must move the vehicle or else it'll be towed. She talks to the staff who agree to give her one more day and she's grateful for it. Next, she stops at the 7-Eleven on Douglas and Humboldt Street around 8.30 a.m. As she enters the convenience store bundled in layers of clothes, camo pants, a gray sweater over a long white shirt, a bag slung over her shirt, she's caught on CCTV. She buys a $200 prepaid debit card at the counter and then doesn't seem to want to leave the store. She's almost nervous or reluctant to leave, but she eventually does so. Then Emma encounters Julian Heward at 10 a.m., who sees Emma while he's riding the bus. He disembarks across from the Alex Golden Hall and can't get her attention. So he leaves to, quote, register for his health card as planned. After he finishes his errand, he once again spots Emma, who seems out of it of sorts. This time, he approaches her to ask if she needs help, but she shakes her head no. Overall, the encounter is short, ending with the two of them heading in different directions. Julian got off the bus to talk to Emma, so they must have known each other, right? Yes, and they actually have an interesting history, which I'll get into really quick before we continue our timeline. They met the year prior during the summer of 2011 in Perth, Ontario, which is Emma's hometown, if you remember. They got to know each other and Julian started to fall for Emma. But the feelings weren't mutual. And Emma decided to head west for her life by the water soon after their meeting. That didn't end Julian's newfound obsession with Emma, though. He continued pursuing her, calling her family home repeatedly in the hopes of hearing her voice. He even sent her father a long email apologizing for his behavior, parts of which reads, quote, I'm sorry that I didn't deal better with this situation and annoyed you in the process with my phone calls. The last thing I want to do is be stalking her like I did the last time, unquote. Julian eventually made his way to Victoria months after Emma arrived and settled into her new life. Whether by chance or his own design, Julian eventually ran into Emma while out and about on November 28th, like we just talked about. Something that Julian says is, quote, a pure coincidence in an interview with the Fifth Estate. Authorities also looked into it and questioned him about this, and he told them the same thing, that it was simply a matter of coincidence. We'll be hearing more about Julian Heward in a little bit, so let's put a pin in it and get back to the timeline. At this point, Emma returns to the same 7-Eleven at 5.54 p.m., where she buys a $200 prepaid cell phone at the counter despite never owning a cell phone ever before. 
Some resources report that because of this action, Emma appears to have been prepping for something. But no one can say what that particular something is because nobody knows. Much like the 7-Eleven visit from earlier in the day, once the transaction is over, Emma doesn't want to seem to leave the store. Again, she appears hesitant. Instead, she stands at the doors with her hands and face pressed to the glass, looking out into the dark parking lot for what feels like a really long time. You can see the convenience store attendant come in and out of frame a few times as Emma still stands there, almost frozen. Some have wondered who was out there, while others question if there was anyone out there at all. Whatever the case may have been, Emma eventually leaves the store and makes her way back to the shelter, where a staff member tells her that Shelly, her mom, will be arriving that evening. And this news upsets Emma, who, if you remember, changed her mind and told Shelly not to come after all. 10 minutes later at 6.10 p.m., Emma hails a cab telling the driver to take her to the airport. Making conversation, the driver asks, where are you going? To which Emma responds, I don't know yet. However, the car ride is short-lived because Emma says she doesn't have the money to cover the ride, which we know isn't true because she bought that $200 prepaid debit card earlier in the day, and it hasn't been used yet. But if you're thinking, well, maybe the taxi driver wouldn't accept a prepaid card, Emma had two to $3,000 just sitting untouched in her bank account. However, some resources say that the dispatch radio in the taxi went off while she was sitting inside, and it spooked her. So maybe not having enough money was simply an excuse for her to get out of the car. We really don't know. Regardless, she ends the ride asking to be dropped off where she was picked up. She starts walking without a destination in mind when she comes to a street corner. She stands at the crosswalk, unwilling to cross. She's barefoot. She's holding her shoes against her chest, and she seems worried, uneasy, constantly looking over her shoulder. When she comes into contact with an acquaintance, Dennis Quay, Dennis approaches her, noticing that she appears to be in need of assistance. And according to his interview with the Fifth Estate, he says, quote, I walked up. I'm like, Emma, are you okay? Are you looking for someone? Is someone following you? Like, what's going on? He stays with Emma for 30 minutes, worried about her. But when she refuses to cross the street, he leaves her momentarily to call authorities at a nearby restaurant. And he waits with her until two officers arrive. Dennis went on to tell the Fifth Estate, quote, I wondered too, should I stay just a bit longer and see what happened with the police? Like, were they going to take her away or not? Like, I assumed they were going to take her, unquote. Two police officers respond to the call and find Emma at 8 p.m. outside of the Empress Hotel. Again, she's shoeless and just seems to be wary of her surroundings. They begin asking her questions, trying to get to the bottom of things, figuring out if this is truly a woman who needs assistance. They conduct the interview in the back of a police vehicle, asking her questions like, where are you going? You're not wearing shoes. According to the Fifth Estate documentary, Emma responds that she's, quote, working through some things right now. I'm just going for a walk and then I'm going to go to a friend's house, unquote. The officers also ask questions regarding the state of her current mental health, wanting to know if she was depressed, sad, suicidal, even homicidal. Emma refused it all. She said she wasn't. The questions lasted for about 45 minutes and officers eventually left because there was nothing more that they could do. She hadn't broken any laws and wasn't a danger to herself or others. So Emma is free to go. And she walks into the dark rainy night alone, which is the last time Emma was ever seen alive. 
This is a decision that's criticized by friends, family, and community members alike, who say that Emma should have never been allowed to walk into the night alone, being in such a clear state of vulnerability like that. Among the most outspoken with her criticism is Shelly, Emma's mom, who says she believes that the authorities aren't qualified to make that call as to whether Emma needed medical attention. Now that investigators have cemented down their timeline, they continue to investigate. And Victoria Police authorities soon uncover a journal entry on her computer, which make them believe that she could have completed suicide. Here's what she wrote. Quote, to everyone from dead Emma, hello. I figure someone will be on this computer at some point and will read this. Okay, so I'm dead. Floating about on energy or not. Watching dying stars, reviving stars, and dreaming milky dreams and shadow dancing on your timelines or whatever. Good luck, every heart. I love you, M. Despite that entry, her mom, Shelly, wholeheartedly believes that that is not the case. In her interview with the Fifth Estate, she tells the interviewer, quote, I honestly do not believe that Emma took her life. There were times that she loved life more than anything, unquote. However, authorities pursued this theory. They dispatched search and rescue divers into the nearby harbor on three separate occasions, looking for Emma's body after her disappearance, each time coming up empty-handed. We know she had been in and around this harbor area before, but what brought investigators back there now? Remember that prepaid card Emma bought the day she disappeared? It was used a week later to buy cigarettes on December 5th in a Colwood store. Turns out it wasn't Emma who used it, though. Police obtained CCTV from the store, which showed a man using the card. They were then able to trace the purchase to an individual who says he found the card near the Galloping Goose Regional Trail in Victoria, thus making investigators believe Emma may have possibly visited the area and dropped the card. The man was then taken into the station and asked to take a polygraph, which he did. And it proved that he was being truthful. He was eventually cleared by the police. But if the man wasn't responsible, then it begs the question of how the card got to the trail in the first place. There weren't any other signs of Emma. Did she disappear on her own accord? Where could she be? These are all questions that investigators and the Philippoff family are wondering at this point. More to that, Emma's parents believe that authorities should be focusing all of their attention on Julian Heward, who we talked about earlier. Because Julian Heward is one of the last few people to interact with Emma on the day of her disappearance, he tells authorities that he wants to clear his name. So the RCMP performs a polygraph test on Julian a year after Emma's disappearance. He passes and consequently is no longer considered to be a suspect. In his fifth estate interview, he tells the show's host, Mark, quote, I don't think a polygraph was needed to find out if I was lying or not. But if that's what was required to clear my name, I was going to do it. Without any major leads and tired of hitting dead end after dead end, the RCMP turns to the public for help in solving Emma's disappearance. They do this through the use of the website Canada's Missing. It's a public-run page and operated by the RCMP, dedicated to the most difficult unsolved cases. Website visitors can view different cases and from there send authorities anonymous tips. Over the years, there have been countless tips in Emma's case, but nothing has been helpful. Local authorities aren't the only ones looking for Emma, though. The Fifth Estate launched their own campaign to help find her prior to the airing of their episode, harnessing their massive public reach in an attempt to spread the news even farther than it had ever been. Law enforcement veterans and amateur sleuths alike joined in the search. They built timeline-sponsored searches and collected even more tips. 
one tip in particular caught the family's attention. And that was a photo of a woman sitting at a table in the window of what appears to be a coffee shop in Vancouver. While the photo is of the unidentified woman's profile, her hair and the portion of her face visible is so eerily similar to that of Emma that even her father thought it was her. Where my mind is going is, if this could possibly be a breakthrough, did they attempt to or were they interested in verifying if this woman was Emma? They were absolutely interested in it. It was only a matter of spreading the photo to get that photo out there. And as news spread about it, a local Vancouver woman identified herself as the subject of the photograph, meaning it was not Emma. Leaving her family and friends brokenhearted at yet another dead end. But then the Fifth Estate uncovered another tip in the form of a Vancouver retail store's 2014 surveillance footage. And this one is spooky. The video shows a dark-haired man of average height and build wearing a lime green shirt, jeans, and tennis shoes enter a business. He walks with a limp, suggesting he may have a prosthetic leg, and both arms are covered in tattoos of flames. He carries something crumpled in his right fist, which ends up being one of Emma's missing posters that he tore down from where it had been posted outside of the building. According to the store owner, the man expressed his extreme irritation at the sight of the poster, saying Emma was his girlfriend and she wanted to be left alone. But the moment the man exited that building, he walked away with any information he may have had about Emma. Because Emma's friends and family don't recognize the man, which isn't too unusual since Emma was incredibly private, but it's noteworthy. Police have released the video in hopes that someone out there knows who he may be. However, they've had no luck and it's been years. Nobody who knows the man has come forward to identify him. Thus, investigators have yet to question him to verify whether or not what he told the store owner is in fact true. And even if he does know Emma, it doesn't mean that she voluntarily wanted to interact with him. If you remember, a ton of her journal entries talk about the subject of possibly being stalked. In fact, there's a quote in one of her entries that says, quote, being stalked by someone or some specter somewhere out there, unquote. Another entry reads, quote, in our dark window, there formed the ghost waiting for us to come close, end quote. I do have to add, this goes without saying, this doesn't necessarily mean she was writing about this guy either. Regardless, that's not the only revelation Emma's diaries brought forth. Mental health experts reviewed the writings and they suggest that there's evidence of, quote, deterioration of Emma's state of mind. This is a sentiment that the staff at the Sandy Merryman shelter echoes in conversation with Shelley, who later told the Times colonist, quote, everybody has ruled out drugs. Staff at Sandy Merryman they deal with addicts all the time, and they said this was most likely a mental breakdown. To this day, Emma Filipoff is still missing, and her mom continues her search day in and day out. In one of the most recent articles I found about Emma's case from the Inside Ottawa Way, Shelley gives a quote talking about her grief and searching for her daughter, saying, quote, I will never give up looking for her. I can't. I won't. I miss her more with each passing moment. I'm consumed by loss. I get through my day. I feel her in me. She's always there with everything I do. In recent years, Shelley has also started working with filmmaker Kimberly Bordage, who's working on a docu-series about Emma's disappearance. We were fortunate enough to get in contact with Kimberly, who has included a statement for us to read in today's episode. Here's what Emma's mom, Shelley, and the filmmaker Kimberly Bordage had to say in their email to the Murder Diaries podcast. The docu-series Barefoot in the Night, The Search for Emma Filipoff, 
spans a decade. Shelly's interviews will be the thread that weaves the story together along with Emma's loved ones, friends, partners, colleagues, employers, acquaintances, witnesses, advocates, criminologist, sociology professor, and the Victoria police detective in charge of Emma's case. The overall theme of this story is hope, and the intention is to continue to shine a light on Emma's story, to potentially reach and inspire those who may have more information, to shake the tree, to hopefully find answers. Currently, the series is planned to be six episodes, but Kimberly sees it as an ongoing project with any new developments. The docuseries first shoot was planned to take place in March of 2020. However, COVID had caused significant delays for their key in-person interviews. They were able to complete those by the end of last year, and over the last two years, a large portion of the interviews were conducted via Skype. But there are more interviews to come as well as some additional shoots. So production is continuing in tandem as Kimberly edits in post. Kimberly writes that they're a small crew and she's solo for now in post-production while she juggles a day and night job and a family. But this project is a labor of love and time. They continue to search for Emma as the film is being made. That's something they want to emphasize, that it doesn't stop. Tips and possible sightings continually come in that need to be logged and followed up on. Kimberly adds that you can imagine how much time and energy it takes to create a six-hour film from an amassed seven years worth of research and footage. So at the moment, she can't give a set release date for the docuseries. Kimberly writes that they haven't done any public funding campaigns for the series. However, they're considering applying for film grants to help with post-production. Kimberly and Shelley also acknowledge that while the Fifth Estate doc, Finding Emma, was and is still a very effective piece in spreading Emma's story, the production contained a few errors that Shelley can now clear up in their own docuseries, which will be significantly more detailed, much in the way a long format series can deliver. Kimberly and Shelley also included in their email that they want to let our listeners know that they're working on a follow-up episode to the Search for Emma Philippoff podcast, which they released in November 2018 for the six-year anniversary of Emma's disappearance. They write, quote, This follow-up episode will pick up where that one left off four years ago. At that point, a successful campaign for a dog search effort we had planned in Victoria, which was motivated from info from a new witness that came forward, unquote. Essentially, the follow-up podcast will be an update on the search for Emma. Shelley and Kimberly will continue to discuss the search, the docuseries, and Shelley's feelings now that they're approaching the 10-year anniversary of Emma's disappearance. The podcast will be released from the Bayberry Films Vimeo channel in November of 2022. It'll be released to all Help Find Emma social media accounts and the official website, helpfindemmaphilipoff.com. If you or anyone you know has information about Emma and her disappearance, please call 250-995-7654. You can also leave an anonymous tip through Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. And that's where we'll leave this episode. Until our next episode, you know where to find us. At the Murder Diaries pod on TikTok and Instagram, at themurderdiariespodcast.com. And if you want to submit a case suggestion, you can do so at themurderdiariespodcast.com or you can write into request at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and give us five stars. It helps us keep the good content flowing. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.